0: Welcome to the Nerd Party.
1: Hello and welcome to Great Shot Kid, the show on the Nerd Party Network that examines the work of Star Wars creators both within and without the Star Wars galaxy. I am one of your hosts, John. And I'm Mike. And we are here today to bring you an examination of George Lucas's second film, American Graffiti. Uh, We've spoken about THX 1138. And uh, American Graffiti, though, is the one that brought great fame to Lucas. You know, maybe not great, but enough fame to him that when 20th Century Fox was promoting uh, Star Wars, they said, from the director of American Graffiti. So it was expected that you would know who that was.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean it, it he he was nominated for best director and the movie was nominated for best picture. I mean it was it was a, a huge hit, you know? Yeah. For uh, sure.
1: Well it's it's just that I, I think that graffiti has been overshadowed through time by oh, his yeah. accomplishment with Star Wars. It, yeah, people, for sure. I, I know that speaking as a Star Wars fan, I was completely unaware of the existence of American graffiti until I was old enough to start reading about he, he did things before Star Wars. Well, that's so mm-hmm. interesting and and watching it. So I think I think we
0: all had that moment
1: in high school where we,
0: you know, decided to go back and look at, uh, you know, <laughs> Lucas's other movies. And we pulled out, you know, THX 1138 and American <laughs> Graffiti. And we're like, oh, these, these are pretty good, you
1: know. Uh, yes. One of the viewing experiences was better than the other. Uh, especially yeah. back then there there's there's no doubt about that yeah no, I, uh, I think that I, I'm in agreement there yeah for sure yeah so American graffiti uh, Mike do you want to give a synopsis in case somebody has not seen it sure
0: uh, basically it's the last day of summer uh, for a group of friends uh, that have just graduated from high school and they're all about to go their separate ways whether it's off to college or whatever and this is their last night uh not necessarily together because they all kind of are doing their own thing but it follows this group of friends um and sort of like what they do on this this night which is sort of like at a uh, where they're they're all at like a crossroads of their of their lives and you know they're they're a, a bunch of kids who just like cruising you know they they hang out with their cars and they drive around you know the San Francisco Bay area, and you know going to to the diner or whatever trying to yep. get liquor and stuff like that, and <laughs> they each kind of uh have their own little uh journeys and epiphanies along the way
1: yeah and i and I think that uh especially of note with with this is I, I don't think that this is, uh, this is crazy to say. And, uh, of course, Walter Murch worked on this, so I think he you know, he naturally has a lot to do with the sound design um, and you know, the, the way that that is used and the way that it informs you know, the emotions of what you're watching. But this is, in a large sense, if you haven't seen it, if you enjoy the works... I mean, the first thing I was struck by when I saw Quentin Tarantino was how you see an echo of what Lucas and Murch do in this which is using music to a very uh you know evocative end and on top of that with this it serves very it, a very important purpose of rooting this you know this evening in time there's no question about where you are in time with this and th- this is all very much a big callback to lucas's own upbringing you know when he was growing up in modesto so it it's it, in a sense you know, his own examination of, I believe he's on record as saying, you know, a a way of life that he saw coming to an end, uh, you know, with with the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you you talk about the Tarantino thing, you know, to kind of like take it a step further is it's, it's very similar to what Tarantino does in Reservoir Dogs, where in addition to it being, you know, a certain you know musical choices which evoke certain themes and stuff like that it's also placed in the context of these characters listening to a radio station you right. know and in in this movie in particular it definitely uh plays into uh the idea that even though the characters are separated they're having this sort of communal experience because they're all listening to the same music you know the entire town is just sort of like overrun with this music you know right from various sources and everything and i mean the the music design which i think in the music editing which plays you know a, a large role in you know the editing of the, the movie i think is is very um impressive because merch creates almost like sort of a Phil Spector wall of sound quality. Yes. Where like it's nonstop and it's just always there in the background and it really helps to sort of bridge everything together. Yeah. Um, it's it's really,
1: really impressive, you know? Yeah, you... I, I, I completely agree about that. And, and the thing is, speaking of the music, there's, there is a... It's a lot of fun because you know we we live in an era where you know we're podcasting and where traditional radio has fallen apart. You know for you know by and large, I mean, you know when I was growing up, when you were growing up, DJs were a thing. You know Howard Stern was a national name, and so what happens with Wolfman Jack in this is you know the small scale sort of thing. Each 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 area, each region had. Their Wolfman Jack had their guy, and I, I think that this is, you know, to speak to what you're saying about the radio is, you know, this would be the type of movie where if I ever wanted to explain to my kids what a connective tissue there was about music and the way it was broadcast before everything became, you know, discombobulated, shattered the way that it is with the internet and with streaming and everything like that, this would be the movie I would show where I would... You know, th- there's this mystique around this mysterious character of Wolfman Jack. He's this legendary, you know, that they even have these theories about where he's broadcasting from and what he's really like. And so, you you know, to, to speak to your point, there, there's this this entire mythos about everybody being aware that they're listening to the same thing. And it becomes a point of conversation for them. It becomes something for them to speculate about. It's almost like a conversation about God, in a sense. Because it's this voice they're all hearing and they all have different theories of who this voice is, what he's saying to them and what it means.
0: Yeah, there's a really interesting psychological component to the idea of listening to music live on the radio or watching, you know, a television program live or something like that. I don't know what it is like you, you can almost feel it, like even if it's just like a television show where it's like I can watch this. You know, as it's airing, you know, like I, I think back to like, let's say like, uh, you know, a Twilight Zone marathon on New Year's Day where you could be like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, watch this, you know, as you know, I can't wait to see what's next and everything. And there's like commercials and everything and a lot of like, you know, noise. And even if you're sitting by yourself, you compare that to let's just say I've got all these these episodes on Blu-ray. And I'm just going to watch the same, you know, same episodes at the same exact time. But I'm going to watch them on my Blu-rays as opposed to on the sci-fi channel. And it feels different because when you're watching them on TV or when you're listening to this music on the radio instead of off of your iPod or whatever, you feel like you're sharing an experience with others, you know. And for some reason, it doesn't feel as isolated or, or lonely in a sense. And right, that's something which is pretty much
1: gone, you know yeah, and and it's odd it's sort of uh it's sort of like the conversation that I've had um you know with a friend of mine a couple of years ago, where I you know even the way albums are constructed now, you know we we came up in an era that was still informed by you know the concept album, but you, or even if you remove it from the concept album, the whole idea was that each album was the sound of where the band was at that specific moment in time, as opposed to, uh, you know, a conglomeration of singles, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So like because the the mindset wasn't around the idea of selling things at 99 cents at a time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, was, you bought the album and, and listened to it. But, you know, aside from that sort of sort of recollection to it with American Graffiti, something I always like to ask is, is there one scene in this that pops out at you? Like, it, you know, when somebody mentions American Graffiti, is there one scene that that comes to you? Because I think there are a lot of moments through this that you can hang on to, that you can say, oh, that's the one that, that says the most to me or something like that. Is there a scene like that in American Graffiti for you?
0: Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess the thing that, that I always kind of think of is really like the first scene where they all kind of like meet up at the diner. And, I mean, like, a lot of the stuff with the diner, I think, is, is really cool. And, and I think maybe part of it is just, like, the way that the diner looks, you know? Like, it looks like a place that I want to hang out, you know? And that seems like sort of like the hub of all this activity. And, you know, that's kind of like where I would want to be because that's that's where, you know, you can find your friends, you know? and And I think maybe that, more than anything else, is... Is what sort of like sticks with me? I mean, I know that it's a, it's a coming of age story and and there's a lot of different aspects to that, and you know people can relate to different characters more than others. And I mean, I guess if I was to you know relate to a specific character, you know, thinking about myself at that particular time or whatever, it would probably be like Richard Dreyfus, but yeah. um, but that's you know not really. What I think of or what I mean, there's honestly, I think there are other coming of age stories, which I relate to much more than than American graffiti. But uh, that that idea of the diner being Mm -hmm. like, you know, the play, the hangout, essentially, you know. Yeah, that's that's I think what what I respond to more than anything.
1: See that that's so interesting, too, because, you know, the 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 different coming of age stories that happen through this. I think that that is something that, you know, because we're, we're talking about this, you know, through the lens of, you know, the editing. Uh, and it really was very, and I remember reading uh, some interview with Lucas somewhere along the way, where Universal was very resistant to the idea of these four parallel tracks going. And when you think about it, especially with the time period, Yeah, these are linear linear stories that all tie together. But the the simple fact that an editor had to sit down with this and make sense in such a way that the audience knew everything that was happening with all of the characters didn't. And when you jumped back to, you know, uh, uh, you know Toad's story or something like that, you didn't lose track of who was where and what was going on. Like you're juggling, you know, four distinct plot lines basically. With this, that all intertwine in different ways and come together at the beginning and the end, but this is a movie that very much, you know, they they're there at the beginning, and they essentially split up and then come back together at the end, for one, you know, for one last moment, and at the, but at the same time, it feels like one continuous story. It feels like one tale that's being told, not four different stories.
0: Yeah, in, in a way, I think like these days, it, that's almost sort of become normalized through like various, you know, sort of like outside the box movies, but also just through like television, you know. There, there's, there's a lot of like continuing storylines in in various shows, you know, which you know you see but i mean back then i i think it's, it was probably a lot less common and i think it's it's one of the things which really makes this movie stand out you know i mean you, you take any one of those individual stories and you know you, you just play it out you know as is as as like one piece and it's pretty straightforward but you put them all together and it feels more like a collection of moments than it does like An actual traditional narrative, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the movie works so well is because it's more of an experiential film than you know, like a a watching like a story play out. You know, it it almost feels just like a collection of moments, and and sort of like um, really does a good job of of placing you, you know, in that in that time and, and place and everything and. You know, the the direction I think really plays into that too. Like, I mean, you hear Lucas talk and you know, he, he he talks about this in regards to the editing, but he also talks about it in regards to the direction and like the idea of like, you know, being interested in sort of making, you know, pseudo documentaries. You know, when right. the idea of like these moments are happening and I'm just capturing them on film. And you look at something like, and he references this in terms of like Star Wars, and you look at something like Star Wars and you're like, Okay. And then, like, he talks about it in regards to episode one, and he's like, see, like, look, in this shot, all you can see is Jar Jar's elbow. Like, that's a CGI character, but all we did was animate his elbow because, you know, he's just kind of half in the frame because that's just where he happened to be standing on this, you know, when we had the camera there. And it's like, that's a little, I don't really think that you're i mean this is it's not like we're talking about you know breathless here or something like that you know what i mean this is not super outside hey. the box thinking but i think if you look at american graffiti he was doing that you know i think yeah. that that the way that it was shot and everything the way that he kind of like lets the the actors just sort of like do their thing and and there's a lot of not necessarily improv but a lot of sort of like room to breathe and people not necessarily always hitting their marks and everything and the photography which was you know great and um, very uh, sort of like gritty while also like epic at the same time I mean they, they, they've they talked about this, it, it, t- same thing with THX-1138, but it was shot on a format called Technoscope, mm-hmm. which was basically like Super 35 before Super 35, where it's essentially just like a flat image letterboxed. But because of that, you're only using like half the frame and you're blowing it up. And by doing that, it gives it this grainy quality, which makes it look almost like it's 16 millimeter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. and and that that i mean you know that really sort of like you know goes into the retro you know thing and all that stuff but the yeah. editing i think also really plays into that that whole aesthetic because it's like they're finding moments you know it's not like you're you know going sure. from shot a to shot b to shot c you're finding the moments and you're you you have you know all of these storylines and you're figuring out how to place them all together, you know, which part of the story are you going to tell next? Which part of the story, mm-hmm. you know, you know, leads into this. And, and it's, I can see why, I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways, I would almost say this is like the quintessential George Lucas movie because all of his theories and everything like that, I think are pushed to the max. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think like if Star Wars was not the huge hit that it was, mm-hmm. He'd probably be making a lot more movies like American
1: Graffiti. I can, you know? I, I completely agree with you. I, I no, I do. I, I completely agree with you because I think that this is this is a movie that finds that balance between the very experimental, abstract sort of storytelling that he was, you know, embracing with THX one one three eight, and the more mainstream narrative. I think American Graffiti straddles that, finds that right, that sweet spot that he'd always been looking for. And I agree with you that if Star Wars had not been the monster success that it was, I think it's even possible, especially reading Splinter of the Mind's Eye, that we get a Star Wars, if he had had to stay low budget, we get a Star Wars sequel that is more like this, more like American Graffiti than it is about, you know, making the scale bigger and telling a bigger, linear story and and those sorts of things. And the, the thing is... I actually and you know okay look we all know I love the prequels and it, you know, we keep coming back to this point but I think very much that you see this come back I think that Phantom Menace is a movie that's informed by you know the the carry through from the reception of Star Wars and I really think that he moves back with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith and I'm not arguing how successful they were because you know I think you know they were but whatever I think you see him move back toward this with Attack of the Clones, especially of the Mm -hmm. idea of juggling the different storylines, you know, and and going through. And, you know, and I think with Revenge of the Sith as well, like there's one main narrative, but there's very much parallel storytelling going on. I I think that you see him, you know, come back more comfortably to American Graffiti-style storytelling with the other two prequels. And I think that that finds a filmmaker in a very difficult position because I think he is working back toward this spot here, this comfort zone that he had, and it winds up getting roundly rejected by a lot of people because they want the stuff that informed what he later became. You know, like, he's, he's an artist that is literally trapped. You know, he is Darth Vader. He's an artist literally trapped by his own success. He can't experiment anymore. You
0: know, I mean, it, it it's interesting that you say that. You know, I, I never really thought of that, but you know, just in hearing that, it, it is actually very similar to Empire. And I mean, not four storylines, but two storylines, and they start right. off together, and then they branch off and come back together at the end. Yep. You know, yeah, that's that's interesting. Although Attack of the Clones, it's the same deal because they do come back together at the end in that as well. Yes. Um yeah, I mean that's that's definitely interesting. You know, I was thinking about this while watching American Graffiti. I was doing like a weird like th- five-step removed what if kind of scenario, but mm-hmm. like <laughs> if if George Lucas was an up-and-coming filmmaker today, okay? Mm. And Star Wars was already a thing, okay? Star Wars was created by another guy named George Lucas, right? Who just yeah. happened to come into existence or whatever and sold the movie to Disney and everything like that. But there was a younger guy named George Lucas, and he makes THX-1138, and... And, you know, it's weird and crazy, but beloved by very few people who saw it. And then he makes American Graffiti and it gets nominated for Best Picture and he gets nominated for Best Director. That young George Lucas, I guarantee you, I mean, he seems like the exact type of filmmaker that Disney would go after to get to make a Star Wars movie.
1: <laughs> you know, i I can see. No, I can see your thinking. That that I mean, makes like, complete sense to me. You look at like you know, I mean.
0: Uh, Ryan Johnson for example you know he's got the weird sci-fi movie with Looper and then he makes you know let's say Breaking Bad and all these things which people you know Gareth Edwards the low budget you know monster and then you know he's got you know like a bigger success a more mainstream thing even uh, you know Colin Trevorrow with you know safety not guaranteed I mean it's just I don't know there's some weird parallels there and I get the impression. That like if George Lucas was coming up today, Disney would be like, "You want to make a Star Wars movie?"
1: I just I I don't know. That's weird. See, I'm just thinking they wind up giving him the Han Solo one, like that. Yeah. You know, because I mean, I mean, please, when they announced Miller and Lord, it was like, "Wait, okay, that's awesome." But what? You know, like that that I, I I'm totally plugging into your thinking is what I'm saying. That's that's totally, yeah. But but here here is the here's the question because Lucas has always said he's more comfortable. Editing a movie. But American Graffiti is not, you know, it's not just George Lucas. He wasn't director, editor, you know, writer, director, editor. He had different people writing the script and he had Marsha in the editing booth.
0: Along with Verna Fields, the uh,
1: editor of Jaws. Jaws. And and there again, no, but there again, you know, because we'll, we'll be talking about Paul Hirsch next week, but like there again is. Lucas is in that circle of friends where you know, oh, I need an editor. Oh, I got somebody. I can I can help you out with that. You know, because Hirsch is basically on loan. Hirsch is basically on loan in Star Wars from De Palma. Chu is basically on loan from Coppola, and Marshall Lucas is the you know the the North Star. You know his his North Star w- w- with these sorts of things. But then of course there's there's merch also you know in the mix here. He doesn't carry over to Star Wars, but Merch is very much in the mix informing I think unquestionably how Lucas approaches sound. I think Lucas is a different director and has a different editorial philosophy if he is not with Merch on THX 1138 and then American Graffiti. I think that Merch's involvement here has a very heavy influence and I think that that the editing here Of how to juggle between all of these different storylines, I think that winds up becoming, you know, because everybody you work with influences something that you've done or something that you will do. You pick up things from people that you work with. And so, I mean, my question is, what about Marshall Lucas's contribution? Is there any echo we can see in Star Wars? Is there is there anything from here where we could say, okay there's there's a signature or is it just that she was a sanity check? Like every good editor should be a sanity check on the director and be able to say to them, I know you want that, but it's going to play better this way. Should be able to stand up to them, basically. Do you think that that carries through to the you know, that that is that informs the success of American Graffiti artistically?
0: I mean, it's it's so hard to, to say, you know, like, what is it exactly that, you know, especially when you have a movie like this where there's two editors and it's like, what exactly did, did Marsha Lucas do or whatever? And But I, I do think that, you know, if you look at the, their work together and the movies that they worked on and the fact that he even brought her back to, to work on Jedi and stuff like that, I think that, you know, what, what you see there is um, someone who... Lucas trusts and and who, you know, seems to be on the same same wavelength with Lucas. You know what I mean? The fact that he used her again and again and again suggests to me that like whatever it is that she was doing was what Lucas was looking for. You know what I mean? Because certainly there are, are people who are not a good fit at times. You know what I mean? They've talked about like, you know, Aliens, for example, you know, Ray Lovejoy, you know, was hired to edit Aliens. And the reason why James Cameron had it or the reason why James Cameron hired him was because he edited 2001 and he's like, well, I want that guy, you know. And then, you know, the two of them get together and it's just they do not understand what. The other one is talking about, and it ends up being like a really bad relationship, and the two never work together again, you know, but you know you look at like Marsha Lucas and they' they're always working together you know all the way up through you know jedi and
1: which, which she's working on even though they're going through a separation and divorce uh, <laughs> during post-production in that so you can only imagine how. I mean, you know, there are stories, there are story. as you continue your journey reading the making of books by Rinsler, yeah, uh he makes a special point to talk about how the crew noticed exactly like Lucas didn't really talk about everything that was like people didn't know mm-hmm. what was going on. Only a few people knew at first. And uh yes, his you know, <laughs> there were people who embraced the you know, the idea of, Oh no, I'm gonna do it till it gets it right, and Lucas had already approved a shot and was apparently you know he was like what the hell is this i already proved this shot why is this shot back up in front of me right you know yeah. and they were like there was a decided difference in his demeanor during return of the jedi than there was during uh you know star wars and empire yeah yeah yeah
0: but you know i mean just just the fact that that he would he would you know work with her again and again you know like even sure. through even through that you know i mean that that really i think does you know speak to to whatever it is whatever it is you know that she was doing it the two of them seemed to to have uh, to be a really good
1: fit you know creatively speaking now now speaking of creative the 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 one the one question i do want to get at is that lucas did revisit the mastering and i believe the very opening shot at the very least of american graffiti when it came out on blu-ray yeah you know the the tinkerer could not leave things completely alone (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's the it's only shot which was changed. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure, too. My question becomes, did, Were there was there anything strange that you noticed about the Blu-ray restoration that struck you as, as odd? Was there any color shift that you picked up on or anything like that that seemed out of place?
0: Mm, not that I noticed. Um, I, I, I think this was actually done for the DVD before the Blu-ray oh, came okay. out. Um okay. But yeah, I mean, like that shot. What they like added? Basically,
1: they made it like more of like a sunset kind of thing. Yes, instead of Which, a the, the the I think the original shot. It was a more monochromatic sky. Yeah. It was just the shot that they had on location, right. and he he put in something with a lot more orangey and cloudy, you know, idyllic sunset sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, I see the reasoning behind it. I think I I read this one when, when they did it. It was like, well. That Basically, the idea is this is going to be from dusk till dawn, you know, and it's like the sun sets and then the last scene is when it rises and, you know, it's the night, you know, it's just about that last night. And I mean, that makes sense. And it's such a, you know, a, a subtle change that I don't think that anyone could really complain about it. I think one of the things that they did do, which, you know, I think works pretty well is... I think they remixed the sound as well into 5.1 instead of mono, um, similar to, to yeah, what true. Merch did on, on conversation. And, and I think that that actually sounds pretty good, you know? Um, yeah. But I did not notice any, like, color shifts
1: throughout the movie. Is this something which people are complaining about? No, I I, I mean, I just, I know that, that you have an eye for it. I didn't see anything particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the, the the strange thing is I do... I, I remember the first time I watched it after that shot had been tweaked, Mm -hmm. and I was, you know, it's it was a little jarring because whoa, you even touched it, you know. Like if you think about it, everything that he has ever directed, everything that he has ever directed, I think possibly Revenge of the Sith escapes this. Yeah,
0: I don't think Revenge of the Sith. Yeah,
1: but on subsequent releases, he has tweaked every last one of them. Oh no! Wait, because, he has he has tweaked Revenge of the Sith because he put it into three D. No, no, no! But I, I'm talking about changes to the shots or okay. editing or sequences. Because when the Blu-ray, I mean, even the Blu-ray of Attack of the Clones, I actually it's it's jarring what happened with the ending on that. I I, you know, it had a perfectly paced ending, and I'm okay with it now. But you know, like the, the he he tweaked the ending of Attack of the Clones in in the Blu-ray, Phantom Menace. He tweaked on the VHS release, then he tweaked on the DVD release, then he tweaked on the Blu-ray release. Well,
0: Attack of the Clones was actually tweaked from 35mm to digital was different. And then, Yes, yes and, it was. And then it was tweaked, well, in, in various ways. It was tweaked uh, uh, for the IMAX version, but... Yes. That's, that, that would, okay.
1: Yeah, but that, but I mean that that's very much a technicality. I did see that in the IMAX version. But t- but the, but the IMAX the, version is I'm where scared. they
0: first when they cuz like remember when like Padmé's lying on the ground and they're like yeah. Padmé are you okay and she's like yes and then gets up. And then yes. like on later versions they changed it so that she's like uh-huh so she doesn't sound like a robot, you know. Like that the first time yeah. that, that was changed was on the the
1: IMAX version. Although, although, well, I mean, and they they cut out some They cut out arguably the worst line exchange in the entire. I wish they would actually cut it out. Yeah, because that scene play the scene in front of the fireplace plays wonderfully, except for one exchange. And every time it comes up, I'm like, oh god, you could just, yeah, just they had it's it's three seconds. Just cut that one thing right there. Yeah, they had they had to cut like twenty minutes
0: or so out of the movie for yes. the... And and they also changed the aspect ratio. So
1: and the the digital effects. I remember especially with the when he's talking to the Jawas at the sand crawl where the digital effects upscaled terribly. Yeah, it, it was release. it was not a,
0: not a good release. You know. Yeah, um, but
1: basically, the the whole thing is that he hasn't left anything alone. No, Nothing yeah. is untouched on disc that he's, he has directed. Except for Why? Revenge
0: of the Sith, I think. Why? Because that's his thing. He's a tinkerer, you know? He can't... He's he's always looking at it and always, you know, trying to make it perfect,
1: right? You know? But does it, does it say something that this, you know, American Graffiti, he tweaks that opening shot, but everything else is left? Well, else but is it's intact. not,
0: though, because <laughs> even okay.
1: going back, like... Originally, and, and I mean,
0: I guess well, this but, is kind of a minor thing. It's his fault or whatever, or that's not really his fault. But like the studio, cut they were minutes. like, yeah, yeah, right. And then when it, you know, after it, you know, became you know a huge success, he's like, I'm sticking those three minutes back in. You know, yes, that's true. So I mean, that's you know, it's it's not like people think of it because of the special editions, because of the discs. But I mean, you go back, and almost every version has like an alternate theatrical release. You know. Star Wars Empire Jedi is actually the same, which is weird. I think, and then you know, looking at you know, the, even the the new movies like Attack of the Clones, there were two versions of that movie. Yeah, you know, running around movie theaters. You know, if you saw it in digital, you saw a couple of different shots. You know,
1: and you know, it's... and you know what's actually. I'm sorry, but like to actually, uh, I remember uh, listening to the commentary for that, and Lucas in the in the arena scene when Jango Fett gets killed. Spoilers. Um, he's sitting there and he's saying, oh, well, you know, in the digital release, we added this, oh, look, oh, no, this is the version I'm watching. And it's like, and for me, it's, that that sort of moment drove me nuts because I was like, okay, come on, dude. How can you not know what, ver-, you know, like, <laughs> I noticed the difference. How could you not notice the, di- you know, th- that sort of thing, so. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I think that's just
0: his thing. I mean, I, I think you could get into, like, the psychology of that, you know, versus, you know, someone, you know, who says like once the movie is out, it's out, and I don't want to touch it. I want to leave it exactly as it is because it's a you know, a, a moment in time. You know that kind of thing, which is certainly the other philosophy, which I think more filmmakers tend to embrace. You know, it's like you 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 work on the movie until you know someone rips it out of your hands, but at that point, you know, it's it's done. It's a done deal. You know? Well, I
1: mean, I, I guess you could argue that he approaches it more like a painter. Mm-hmm. Where until you put that painting in a frame behind glass, he's going to keep coming back to it. He considers but the it thing a like I mean because I preaching.
0: remember there was obviously a lot of talk about this back in '97. You know when he did yeah. this, and I remember reading some think piece on it, and the the way that the article started was. Uh, it was some painter i forget who some famous painter from god knows which century and there they did some sort of masterwork and it was on display at this museum and he was there as a guest of honor or whatever and he's looking at the painting and then he leaves and then he comes back and like in the middle of like this you know gallery or whatever he comes back with his paintbrushes and he starts tweaking his own painting
1: yeah and
0: everyone's freaking out like you're ruining it and it's like he's like well that's my mi- I'm t- it's mine though right I can do that right yeah and it, it was sort of like you know a philosophical question like can you I mean like are you allowed to at what point does the painting stop becoming I, yours and start becoming the audience
1: see I I actually I'll credit uh, Martin Scorsese with uh, giving a great lens into Lucas for me with uh, the aviator. Uh, because I, I you know, I, I learned a lot about Howard Hughes in that movie. And the fact that he went back and he kept tweaking and retweaking. Every time a new technology came out, he kept retweaking his movie that had won an Oscar. He kept retweaking it over and over and over again because a new technology came out. And he said, oh, this is an, a, an opportunity to make it even better, to make it better, to make it better. And, I mean, to, to speak to that thing, like, I, I understand in a very... In a very, uh, you know, personal sense, there there was a time where I painted a lot more than I do now, and I would either continually tweak or destroy whatever I created. And so, there's a friend of mine who has everything that I ever did up to a certain point because he insisted he was like, no, 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 don't destroy, don't destroy. You, I'm going to preserve, I'm going to preserve. And the mm-hmm. only way he could keep me away from it is he actually had them like locked up in a room. <laughs> It was like, you yeah. can't even get to them. You can't even see them. You can't touch them. So, like, I, I mean, that's the thing is, like, I have um, a, I understand why he does that. I understand why he feels the compulsion to do that. But nobody, nobody particularly cares that he did that with American Graffiti. Nobody makes think- a note of it.
0: Well, I think the reason for that, you know, and, and it's it it really gets into sort of like the psychology of this and, and everything. I think there's two reasons. One. As popular as American Graffiti is, it's not nearly as popular as Star Wars. And while certainly there are some people who probably see that opening shot and are like, damn, he messed that up. I know what that shot's supposed to look like, and that's not what it is. There's very, very few people, comparatively speaking, to, you know, Star Wars. You know, I mean, I think, you know, Max described the Star Wars thing best, which is like, uh, whether or not it's better or worse, It's like listening to a song that's been remixed or something like that where you know that song so well, you know, every single note that when one note is changed, there's just something in your brain that like glitches and you're like, that's not right, you know, whether or not, you you know, objectively it's better. Yeah, it's just it feels wrong to you personally.
1: You know, there there is a there is a fantastic uh, that that's a great example because I am a huge Doors fan. And when mm-hmm. they re-le- that when they re-released a box set a couple of years ago, they did the new stereo remasters and Roadhouse Blues. They amped up the harmonica in the beginning and yeah. they reemphasize like everything gets sort of like reemphasized and like teased out and everything. And it drove me nuts for the longest Mm -hmm. time. It even drove me nuts uh, on Break On Through when they added in, instead of She Get, they added in the original lyric, She Gets High, She Gets High, She Gets High. And every time, to this day when I hear it, because I listened to that album until the record wore out, and I hear She Gets High, and I'm like, nuts, no, (laughs) no, no. And they added back in all of the cursing that they had masked over for the end. And it's like, well, okay, well, I definitely can't listen to this at all in front of anybody now, you know, that sort of thing. It's 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 like that in reverse for the uh, the Beatles,
0: where just recently, well, I mean, a few years back, they released that box set of all of the their um, mono mixes. Okay. And those are the definitive versions. Like you know, the Beatles, their their philosophy was basically like everyone's going to have mono. You know, that's going to be what people are going to be listening to. So they would put all of their time and effort into really into creating the mono mixes and then basically handed them off to uh, what's his name? The fifth Beatle.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, George something. George. Yeah. I always think of Eddie Murphy from Saturday Night Live. So I'm (laughs) no good on that.
0: <laughs> that guy, and he's the one who basically, you know, like did the stereo mixes. But then, you know, as technology was what it was, the stereo mixes are what everyone's heard. And you go back, and you know, for the most part, it sounds pretty damn similar. But there are certain songs where there's something which is substantially different, and you're just like, whoa. Whoa, yeah. you know, like something on Sgt. Pepper or, or Revolver. And you're like, this is weird, even though that is what they always intended. And, and, you know, probably what we should have been listening to all along. That's not what we're listening to. That's what, not what we listen to. But, I mean, I think the other thing about, um, you know, the difference between the American graffiti shot and Star Wars. Well, two things. One, it literally is just one shot, you know, and two, it's very unobtrusive. You know, where I think the, sure. the problem that a lot of people have with Star Wars is that it really does feel anachronistic. It does not feel like a movie which was made in 1977. It feels like a movie which was made in 1997. Right. C- mixed with a movie which was made in 1977. And those two things just don't gel. And that's why people, I think, have have a big problem with it, you know. And, and not to mention, like what you were saying, where it's like, you know, that thing where if he had released the the versions, the 1977 versions, people probably wouldn't care one way or another. Yeah. But the fact that you know you can't get them, it's become a thing. It's it's like a you know a holy grail thing. But that obviously doesn't apply to American Graffiti because it's the same scenario. But it's just that one
1: that one and shot. I, and I don't. I mean, I'm sure there are people alive who saw it in the theater with the three minutes missing, but I've never seen it without those three minutes. So I'm not too terribly concerned about it. Right. Uh, So any final thoughts on American Graffiti? Do you recommend is this a is this a movie that you would uh, qualify as a must see for a film fan?
0: Um, I, I think it's pretty high up there. I mean, I I don't know if it's a must-see, but I think if you're a George Lucas fan, you should definitely see it. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you look at, let's say, his first three movies, you know, THX, you know, American Graffiti, and Star Wars, I, I would put this at number two. And um, I think that it, it really does show kind of like the evolution of his career. And I think that it's also sort of like a glimpse at, you know, sort of like Lucas in his purest form i mean in in a lot of ways i think star wars has become such a thing and lucas and his you know like tastes as an older filmmaker have become such a thing that star wars kind of gets lumped into that sort of weird nebulous untouchable you know category where it's like almost like it's not a movie anymore it's a star wars You know, and I I think that, you know, you look at like THX, American Graffiti and Star Wars as this weird trilogy. You can get the idea of what kind of filmmaker George Lucas would have been if
1: he wasn't the guy who created Star Wars. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I and and I, 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 I am with you and I definitely think that, uh we should at some point in the future uh revisit my theory that if you watch uh the prequel trilogy you can actually see basically a step by step basically uh therapy mechanism for a filmmaker who is older you know mm-hmm. reliving the stages of his early career uh, yeah. as as you walk through the prequels um you know i i, th- I think you see uh Phantom Menace is THX, Attack of the Clones is, is Graffiti, and then Revenge of the Sith is Star Wars. And, yeah, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that there is, uh, there's something to be said about that. But what I would really like to say something about is that if you want to reach out to the show, if you have thoughts about American Graffiti and uh, you want to share them with us, you can go to the nerdparty.com slash contact. Look up the show. Look up any of our shows and uh, go ahead and reach out to us. Let us know what you're thinking, what you think of what we said. You can uh, find us on iTunes. Look us up. Uh, Give us a review. Uh, We think we've got a pretty nifty show here. Go ahead and let the world know what you think of it. And uh, just look up uh, Great Shot Kid on iTunes and we'll turn up and uh, you can drop us a review. Uh, We will read your review on the show. Um, We would greatly appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. And, uh, Mike, where can people find you roaming around on the Internet?
0: Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, doing uh, Commentary TrackStars, where we do audio commentaries and various other things. And you can also find me on Trek.fm, where I do a show called Stage 9, where we look at uh, the people who make Star Trek. It's very similar to this show, only Star Trek instead of Star Wars. And one of the things which makes it so similar is the fact that my co-host is
1: John. <laughs> Mills! Yes, me! I, I'm on that show too. And uh, that show is actually a great deal of fun. Uh, we are actually going to be looking at... Uh, uh, We actually just looked at Pacific Rim this week and we will be joined by Larry Nemechek over on Stage 9 to talk about Jonathan Frakes and his contribution to the Star Trek uh, Masterwork series, uh, such as it is. And uh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. You can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And you can find me right here on the Nerd Party, co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with Matthew Rushing. And be sure to find us on Twitter on the show official Twitter handle at Join Nerd Party. And join us next week when we will be looking at uh, the work of Paul Hirsch, uh, the third editor on the original Star Wars, and his work with Brian De Palma on the film Sisters. (laughs) Sisters.